Well, Acts chapter 1. We'll be in the book of Acts really until December when we take the month to do a series of Advent sermons leading up to the day that we celebrate is the birth of the Lord Jesus. So we're going to cover all of chapter 1 today. Let me just read through it, and then we'll go back and work through it together. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a Keldama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven 
apostles. I'd like to go back to verse 1 just for a minute because it kind of propels us forward. It makes a few connections that are very helpful as we begin this study. Most basically in this first verse of Acts, Luke connects the book of Acts to his gospel. So Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and in verse 1, he connects the book of Acts to his gospel so that the two books are meant to be read together. Acts picks up on where the gospel of Luke leaves off with a little bit of overlap between Luke 24 and Acts 1. It's very basic. Second, the purpose of both books is stated clearly here in this first verse. Luke's gospel is a record, as Luke says here, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up. So Acts, then, is most appropriately a record of all that Jesus continued to do and to teach after he was taken up, which is why on our graphic for this study we have titled it Acts of the Risen Lord, with the tagline of Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, I will build my church, because that is exactly what is on display throughout this book. It is the risen Christ doing exactly what he said he would do, build his church. So whether you prefer to work, refer to the book of Acts as the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, or the Acts of the church, all of those are certainly true, and they're historical, and they've, they've been used um, all throughout history as, as very appropriate headings for the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit being the agent of the work of Christ and the apostles and the church being the means of his work, nevertheless, in Acts 1 and verse 1, Luke's stated purpose from the beginning is to connect what happens in the church through the Spirit after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to what began to happen in Jesus' life. From his birth as the true seed of the woman and the true offspring of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Jesus, who is of the tribe of Judah and in the lineage of King David, all the way to his fulfillment of the law of Moses and his life of miraculous works, all the way to his atoning death as the sinless one dying in the place of condemned sinners, and thereby putting a definitive end to the entire sacrificial system, finally to his triumphant Resurrection from the dead and his ascension to his father's right hand. Certainly what John the Baptist said, announced concerning the Lord Jesus is not only true, but it sets the tone for what we see unfolding throughout this book. That in the person of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven has truly come. So that there is no disjunction between the Testaments. But rather a perfect conjunction in the person of Jesus between the fulfillment of the Old Covenant and the inauguration of the New. 
The new covenant being most succinctly described as the restoration of the true Israel that the Old Testament foretold all over the place. The true Israel by nature being a spiritual people called the church whose citizenship in Christ's kingdom was purchased in full by King Jesus himself in his death. Rather than the true Israel being a national people with ethnic distinction, whose kingdom would be confined to a piece of land with borders and buildings and temples. So the book of Acts is very appropriately the Acts of King Jesus building his church and expanding his kingdom to the ends of the earth through the agency of the Holy Spirit and by the means of the apostles and subsequently the church, all for the glory of his Father. And while all of that is highly theological and it's, it's big, it's grand, glorious, there is also a very raw simplicity to this book of Acts. Especially in the early chapters that is so helpful and instructive, especially to the church, um, not only in any age, but I think in particular in our day. The raw simplicity is helpful and instructive to the church today that exists in a very formal and a very complex Age. The raw simplicity is helpful because it reminds us over and over again that God saves sinners and builds his church no other way but one, by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the witness of his people. We're going to see that taking place in an amazing way beginning as early as the next chapter. And I hope that seeing the Holy Spirit apply the message of the gospel as it's spoken from the mouths of redeemed people to hardened sinners and save them through it, I hope that motivates our obedience to bear witness as well because God has never commanded us to control the outcome of our witness. He simply commanded us to bear witness always promising that he's in control of the outcome. So the raw simplicity is helpful because it clarifies the mission. And it strips away the unnecessary complexities. As well as exposes the incompleteness of formalities. And it keeps us a little bit off balance. But knowing all the while that if we give every complexity and formality up, that bearing witness that Jesus is the Christ with our mouths in dependence on the Holy Spirit would still be left standing because it doesn't get more raw or simple or necessary than that. But I said these early chapters are also highly instructive because in them, Jesus and Luke and Peter and later others, as the book continues and the church grows and expands and by nature is forced to get more complex. 
They just keep rescuing the church from veering off course. And either making non-gospel issues into gospel issues. Rescuing the church from constant distraction and non-essentials. But then helping the church interpret legitimate gospel issues always in light of the gospel and never independent of it. An example of both being a question we're going to see early on here. They say, Lord, will you restore the kingdom to Israel now? And Jesus says, don't worry about that. Example of the other being later on, Acts 15. So, are we supposed to make Gentile converts get circumcised? And they come together to consider it in light of the gospel. So one major hope and prayer as we pursue this study is, along with the early church, that we as a body might grow in our ability to discern between gospel issues and non-gospel issues. And in so doing, that we might be challenged to interpret the gospel issues in light of the gospel and never independent of the gospel. As well as joyfully check our non-essential, potentially distracting preferences and personal agendas in relation to non-gospel issues at the door. Always being brought back to a joyful submission to Jesus' authority as our King and the head of this body. And to a consequent unified fulfillment of the mission that He has left us, which in Matthew's words are make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things whatsoever He has commanded. We're being consistent with the authorship of our book here, using Luke's wording both in his Gospel and in Acts. Be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. This book itself begins between Jesus' resurrection and His ascension. The same way Luke's gospel ends. The main difference between the two accounts is Acts lets us know that Jesus' post-resurrection appearances and teachings among his disciples took place over a period of 40 days. Which is crucial because Jesus' post-resurrection appearances are the basis of what the twelve are sent out to do and to proclaim To bear witness that the Christ who died in the place of sinners has been raised from the dead. Luke's gospel, on the other hand, smashes everything between the resurrection and the ascension into one connected account as if it all took place in one day. And there's no disunity there. It's the same author of both. There's no disunity there. There's just a different purpose at the end of Luke from the beginning of Acts. At the end of Luke, Luke is tying off what he calls the beginning of the works and teachings of Jesus. But he smashes post-resurrection and ascension together in order to provide some overlap then that he can pick up on and expand on in his second volume, the book we're studying now, the book of 
Acts. I'm dividing our text this morning into two main sections. Verses 1 to 14 and verses 15 to 26. The first section details Jesus' final instructions to his disciples before his ascension. The second section records the church's first activities after his ascension. So between the end of Luke's gospel and the beginning of Acts, we know that Jesus led his disciples from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. And from there he was taken up into heaven in a cloud. And the final two things he says to his disciples, as Luke at least records them, are one, stay in Jerusalem until the Father sends you the Spirit, and two, when the Spirit comes and clothes you with power, go and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. It seems as though the last thing the disciples are recorded as saying to Jesus is this really perplexing question in verse 6. They ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That question is perplexing because it's very inconsistent with what Jesus had taught them about the kingdom. It's very inconsistent with how we've talked about the nature of the kingdom as the reign of Christ over a spiritual people without ethnic boundaries or geographical boundaries or buildings but rather a spiritual people who've been made citizens of the kingdom by the death and resurrection of the Christ. But here we have the disciples, even after Jesus' teaching and works and death and resurrection, they're still talking about the kingdom of Israel as if it were defined by nationality and borders and temples and buildings. But look at Jesus' reply. There's really three parts to it. First, there is a correction. I would would even call it a soft rebuke. Because Jesus clearly tells them that they are concerned about issues that are not theirs to be concerned about. And it's so helpful because what Jesus says is that there are issues that are inherently connected to the life of the church. That are not any of ours to worry about, but are watched over safely under God's authority alone. From this verse, the things that fall under this category are times and seasons and plans in the future. This is just one example of what I said earlier about the church needing to be pulled away from distractions and brought back to its mission. And it's not the only time it happens in our text. Because after Jesus ascends, the disciples are pictured as they're gazing into the heavens. And two men in white robes appear and they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into the heavens? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven shall so come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And I read that and I think to myself, man, give him a break. I just saw Jesus taken up to heaven in a cloud. And they're just supposed to walk away and get back to business. I think there's room for a little bit of gazing there. But that's exactly what 
both Jesus and the two men here say, they say, don't concern yourself with matters that are outside of your control and that the Father has reserved and promised under His control. And don't become, probably more relevant here, don't become paralyzed by your awe of God or your waiting for the consummation of all things. Don't, don't let that waste, don't let your, um, your awe of God or your waiting for the things that He's promised are surely coming, don't let that paralyze you and make you waste your life. So the men assure the disciples, he's coming back. Don't worry, but standing here and gazing into the sky until he does is not why he left you here. So why did he leave us here? Back to verse 7. They ask the question in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus answers, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then listen to the wording, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So don't, don't concern yourself with matters that are safe under the Father's authority. Your power, however, will come when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It's very Interesting because he distinguishes the Father's rightful authority to fix times and seasons and plans and the future from a measure of power that is given to the Father's people for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to bear witness of him. And the power to do it is from the Holy Spirit leaving us without Him with no power. And even with Him with no authority like the Father's authority. So any degree of power that you or I have to bear witness or to live holy or to do anything that is God-glorifying in life, any degree of power that we find ourselves having can never be credited to us ever. It is given as a gift from the Father who possesses authority over all things. And it's purchased by the blood of Christ for us and distributed to us by the Holy Spirit who is sent to indwell us in order that He might empower us for His purposes. So don't worry about God's future plans for Israel or His church or your church, for that matter. The Father is in full control of all of that. Your passions and energy ought to be directed elsewhere, namely, being a Spirit-empowered witness that the Christ who died has risen again. If I could restate that, but more theologically, I agree with one author who says the disciples were worried here 
about the restoration of Israel. And Jesus responds to them, you are the restored Israel. Now go and be a light to the nations, to quote Isaiah 49 and verse 6, so that salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. Verse 8 is the theme verse of the entire book. It details the disciples' mission and it outlines the way in which it was to unfold and did unfold and is still unfolding. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which we'll see in chapters 1 to 7. Be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, which we'll see in chapters 8 through 12. And be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, which in Acts takes up the rest of the book, 13 to 28. But outside of Acts has taken up all of human history ever since. So hear that we are living in the last stage of the fulfillment of God's plan to build his church and expand his kingdom to the ends of the earth. Again, paraphrasing this author. God's purposes embrace the salvation of the world to the ends of the earth. Therefore, the surest route to the second coming of Jesus is the evangelization of the world. And with that commission, Jesus is gone. Just like that. The cloud receives him back up into the heavens, to the Father's right hand. And the disciples do what Jesus commanded them to do. They returned from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And they go into an upper room where apparently a number of them were living. And it would be approximately a week before the Father sent the promised Spirit on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. So what occupied the disciples' time while they waited in obedience to Jesus? Let's read verses 12 to 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So rather than restoring the glory of the kingdom to Israel and crushing her oppressors and sitting on David's throne, Jesus was arrested, beaten, crucified, leaving his disciples during those three days, confused, angry, sad, all at the same time. And then he rises from the dead. And he appears to them over a period of 40 days, and he teaches them about the kingdom, according to verse 3, restoring their hopes that the time had now come, but now he's gone. And he tells them that he will come again someday, but until that day, he will send the promise of the Father in the person of the Holy Spirit to them. So don't leave Jerusalem until he comes. And what are the disciples found doing in Jesus' absence? What's their first inclination? It says here they pray. They pray. The apostles, the women, the disciples, they're all together praying in 
unity. We could even say that what unified them was their prayers. They were united in prayer for now, not worried about the things that they can't control. And not paralyzed by what they've seen or known or know is coming for that matter. They pray. We can all speculate as to what they might have been praying about. And I'll give you my speculation. I think that they were probably praying about the last things that Jesus spoke to them. So I would say that they were praying to the Father for the coming of the Spirit. And they were praying about their coming mission to be His witnesses to the ends of the earth. I'm sure that there was more that they prayed for, but most likely there was not less. And verse 14 makes clear that they were united on these things. So hear that. They weren't using, for lack of a better term, a week of quote-unquote downtime. When Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem, just wait. It was a week of time. They weren't using a week of downtime to argue about things that the Father intentionally fixed to be outside of their ability to ever know, no matter how much time or effort they put into knowing them. They spent their time in prayer. As well as they spent their time searching the Word and submitting themselves to what they found in it. So, as our text continues, Peter stands up among the full number of disciples, which at the time we're told is 120, and he quotes two psalms. So he opens the word, he quotes two psalms. He quotes Psalm 69, 25 in Acts 1, verse 20. And he says that what was spoken there by the Spirit was fulfilled in the death of Judas. And because, according to Acts 1, 17, Judas was numbered among them and was given his full share in their ministry His vacancy among the twelve must be fulfilled. So Peter quotes Psalm 109 and verse 8. To say that the Holy Spirit also spoke beforehand there about appointing a replacement to Judas. So this is the full number of disciples. They're gathered in one place. They're united in prayer They're anticipating the fulfillment of all the Father's promises. They're searching the Word. And upon hearing the Word, they're bringing themselves under subjection to it. The requirements of the man that they were looking to affirm as God's selection as the twelfth apostle are right here in our verses, verses 21 to 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. So the man who would take Judas' place as the twelfth apostle had to have been among them through the entirety of Jesus' ministry to his ascension. So hearing his teaching, bearing 
eyewitness testimony, not only of his death, but more importantly of his resurrection. Because when Luke or Jesus or Peter here talks about bearing witness of Jesus, what is always specifically highlighted, as Peter says in verse 22, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they chose two who met these qualifications. And they prayed some more in verse 24. They prayed, I want to point this out, seldom referred to as a a title given to our Lord, but that is how it's worded. They pray in verse 24 to the Lord who is called there the knower of the hearts of all. And then they cast lots. And they numbered Matthias among the twelve. And all of a sudden, the seven-day waiting period between Jesus' ascension and the coming of the Spirit is over. Because in the next verse, where we'll pick up next week, is the day of Pentecost. But I want to close down our time this morning thinking of the day that we live in. Just like the book of Acts, as a continuation of the works that Jesus began to do in his life. In other words, he's still building his church. The resurrected, risen Christ is still doing in this world what he said he would do while he was here on earth. He's building his church. So I want to close down our time this morning reflecting on our text And giving us two potential pictures of what Christ's fellowship could become. One by God's grace, and one if we're not careful. And as I give you these two potential pictures of what Christ's fellowship might become, I want to plead with you, and I want to look in the mirror and plead with myself to pray to God that by the power of the Spirit we might totally reject the one and strive wholeheartedly for the other. So first, Christ's fellowship, if we're not careful, could become a church that makes non-gospel issues into gospel issues and fights as hard for those issues as they do for the gospel. That would be a church that is consumed with details that God in his sovereign grace has withheld from us because those, because those details are non-essential and distracting. This would be a church whose awe of God is not motivating but paralyzing. This would be a church that's filled with members driven by personal agendas rather than God's stated mission. That's what we could become. Here's what's... So you say, I don't know what you're thinking, oh, we'd never become that. Here's what struck me, like, after writing the sermon, I think I was just walking around here unlocking this morning. 
So when you sh- Acts one, totally, it's it's just raw church, basic, fundamental. What did they default to? What were the what were the essentials so early on? What do you see them doing? They're praying and they're commanded to evangelize. Okay, so how easy would it be for Christ Fellowship to become a distracted church consumed with non-gospel issues? The one I've just described? Um, let me just give you a reality check. Kind of a scary one. If you strip everything away and you boil it down to prayer and evangelism, like I think we see here, what are the two things at the beginning of the year we noted we are failing um, badly on and that we really need to work on? The two very things that are left standing when you strip everything else away. A united body of prayerful evangelizing people, Christ fellowship, wake up. If we're not careful, we are going to become the church that is rebuked for being off mission. Don't contribute to that. Don't let me contribute to that. More positively, by God's grace, We could strive, I should say, let us strive to be a church united in prayer with our Bibles open, searching the scriptures for instruction, bringing ourselves under subjection to that instruction when we find it, eagerly seeking the will of God in all things and powerfully bearing witness to the world that the Christ who paid For the sins of every condemned sinner who believes in him has also risen from the dead and is alive and reigning today and building a church and expanding a kingdom that has no walls or borders or ethnic boundaries, but a church and a kingdom of citizens who have been brought in by grace under the blood of its king, who now pledges himself in all that is his to its citizens and is still accepting any others who will believe. Christ fellowship, may we hear the rebuke and receive the correction of Jesus and the apostles where we reflect the former. And may we humbly seek and defend and give glory to God always where we reflect the latter. And may by God's grace we reflect the latter all the days that God gives us in existence. Let's pray. Father, we're sobered this morning that when All complexity and all formality is just stripped away. When everything really that makes our gatherings um, 
enjoyable and tightly knit and smooth flowing. Lord, when it's all stripped away, we find ourselves left with the two things that we have such a difficult time. Prioritizing is probably the wrong word, Lord, but following through with um, being committed to being even eager for, anxious for. Lord, my my prayer is, and even as these 120, Lord, they corporately submitted themselves to you as they found instruction in your word, Lord, may May you just hear an open submission of Christ's fellowship under your sovereign grace, your care, your authority that, Lord, on our own, we will not be a praying and evangelizing and Bibles open, word-searching, corporate-submitting church. But Lord, you said you'll build your church. So we're asking you to take great pleasure in continuing to do that here. And Lord, as we continue in even private prayer for a few moments, may you just strip away from all of us our preferences, our our non-gospel infatuations, our personal agendas. And through this book, Lord, bring us back to unity and the basics. That's what we hope for. In Jesus' name, amen.